Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's newest podcast, C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller. That's me. Each week you probably recognize my mug or my voice because I am privileged now to be hosting Franklin Covey's other podcast on leadership about 17 feet that way. That airs twice weekly, Tuesdays and Fridays, where we have the privilege of interviewing best-selling authors and business titans and celebrities talking about all concepts related to leadership. Well, a funny thing happened on the way to that podcast becoming what is now the world's largest twice-weekly podcast. It wasn't always the famous Hollywood celebrity or the emeritus politician or the CEO of major Fortune 10 companies that got the most likes or reviews or downloads. It was often the people like you and I that had had remarkable careers. They were very relatable. They had done things that we could also do had we either navigated around that metaphorical pothole or maybe showed a little more courage. And so because of the interesting insights our listeners and viewers shared with us, we spun off this new podcast where each week we have conversation with someone and different companies, organizations in the C-suite. I'm delighted that Jennifer McCollum is joining us today. She is the CEO of Linkage, which is a company not so dissimilar to that of Franklin Covey. They've poured their heart, their experience, and their research into the, the question around how to build better cultures, how to groom more effective leaders. And recently, Linkage was acquired by SHRM, the Society for Human Resource Management. You know this as the largest association of people enablers in the world. Jen is also the author of the new number one best-selling Amazon book, In Her Own Voice, with just released. Uh, the title actually is In Her Own Voice, A Woman's Rise to CEO, Overcoming Hurdles to Change the Face of Leadership. Jennifer McCollum, welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Scott. It is a pleasure to be with you. Jed, I, I, we don't often interview authors about their books, but your book is so relatable because it's about a woman's rise to become CEO. We'll talk about some of the key nuggets in your book in her own voice. I'd love it if you would rewind a couple of decades because I'm always fascinated, and I'm guessing others are as well, with how people got to where they are. You've had an interesting journey. I would actually call it rather deliberate. Every career has some serendipity. Would you take us back a couple of decades and talk about the milestones in your career, how you became the CEO of Linkage and now a leader at SHRM, this, this massive organization helping people build capacity and capability in their people? Absolutely. A couple decades ago, I was at the Coca-Cola company and I was a, a mid-manager and I was really good at what I did and that was communications and public affairs. The problem was three or four years into that, I realized it wasn't my purpose. It wasn't my vision to keep doing that. And so Coca-Cola helped me evolve my career into the leadership space. And it was because at Coca-Cola, I looked out and I saw leaders and teams and functions that could be operating more effectively, could be operating more aspirationally. And I raised my hand and said, will you train me to do that? That then started uh, when Coca-Cola cut that entire department. I raised my hand and said, I want to consult back to Coca-Cola. And that started eight years as an entrepreneur, where I built my skills as a leadership consultant, designing and delivering large-scale leadership experiences, coaching executives. 
And then I realized I wanted to build businesses and grow businesses in the leadership space. So then I moved into the, the next 12 years or so at publicly traded companies where I was running the business of leadership. So I was managing the teams. I was managing the strategy. I was creating the vision. I was integrating M&A. And then at that second publicly traded company, I realized that I wanted to move from a general manager into the CEO role or to the C-suite role. And to do that, I needed to move away from publicly traded companies into middle market companies where I could rise as the CEO. And then I discovered the private equity portfolio company and uh, the portfolio model. And I was asked to consider becoming the CEO of Linkage, which is, as you mentioned, a global leadership development firm that was transforming. And I knew that I could lead as a CEO for the first time, I could lead that company into the next era. And that era really started about a year ago when we sold the company to Sherm. Jen, it's actually an interesting journey because the usual, if you will, trajectory of someone who becomes a best-selling author and a thought leader and a public speaker, it's usually at the tail end. It's the bookend of a long corporate career. But you've had a couple of intentional disruptions, some self-disruptions, because in addition to being the CEO of a large consulting company, you also are a best-selling author. You're a member of what is known as the MG100, 100 Coaches. So you have been a thought leader in the topic for many decades. What gave you the confidence to say before you became a CEO that you have not just the confidence, but the competence to write, to speak, to coach, and to really become a thought leader. That's an interesting level of confidence that usually becomes, I'd say at the end of someone's career, you're probably halfway through your career, if even that. That's an interesting, it's an interesting, I'd say bravado in a complimentary way. I have bravado, you have bravado. What did you, what did you know or do or feel that you think every other woman leader that's listening to this should also know and feel and do? Well, first of all, I wanna thank you for telling me I'm only halfway through my career. Uh, I've, I've been doing this for three decades now. And yes, to your point, I feel like I have more to offer even at this stage of my career. But to take it back maybe you know, five or six years ago as I was contemplating my next move, I got really clear, and this is actually something that women leaders specifically, it's one of the largest hurdles they face. And that is when you are to ask a woman or when I was to ask myself, what is it that I most want for the next phase of my career? If I looked out two and three and five years. Yeah. And let me tell you, Scott, being a thought leader, writing a book, being on a stage was something I, have been, I had been dreaming about probably for 20 years. I just had to find mm. what is my story? What is my content? What is my platform? And for me, business leadership has always given me that purpose and giving me that content. And so when I arrived at Linkage and I realized the work that we did in the world aligned so beautifully to my purpose. And our purpose at Linkage is to change the face of leadership. And we have the data and the framework and the insights. So even as I, along with the executive team, was transforming the company, I was getting clearer and clearer about my voice in that work and how that voice could come to life on the stage and in my writing. And frankly, with the partnerships and the business development, all of that aligned perfectly, but it took that level of clarity 
of what is my, my content, what is my perspective, what is my voice, which is frankly why the book is called In Her Own Voice. Jen, in the book, it's really a roadmap of not just how women can rise, but also how other people can be sponsors and allies and champions. You give great examples of people that have done that for you and for countless other women. So many great stories in this book. You open the book identifying, I think it maybe it's eight hurdles uh, about how women face on their rides. You, you, you acknowledge that men can also face these, but you put down kind of a bold stake in the ground that says, but they're especially higher and harder for women. They are kind of in reverse order, networking, making the ask, branding and presence, recognized confidence, we'll come back to that, proving your value, clarity, and internal bias. But you kind of say that the overarching hurdle before all of these is what you call the inner critic. We hear so much about imposter syndrome. I'd like you to riff for a few minutes and maybe give voice to the reality of everyone's inner critic and maybe speak especially to the women listening or to the fathers or the executive sponsors of women. How do we, how do we embrace our inner critic? How do we conquer it? How do we ride it, if you will? Love it. And, and, and you actually said this. So I want to make very clear that the inner critic is something all of us face across gender. We do know that the inner critic is louder for women, and we know that it can prevent us from taking action, from pursuing our dreams. And the inner critic is that voice in our head. Most often as we're rising in leadership ranks, it's very critical and judgmental of ourselves. The inner critic can do the same pointed at others as well. But the inner critic, I'll just, I like to tell the story of what mine, what it often sounds like, and then I'll give you a story of my own. Um, so what it often sounds like for women is, I'm not good enough, or I shouldn't speak up in the meeting, or I shouldn't ask for that raise or promotion. And that voice in our head can be so loud that it can paralyze us from taking action, or it can minimize our dreams. So uh, the story that I love, because the inner critic is something that, while it can be quieted, it never actually totally goes away. So five or six years ago, when the headhunter came to me and said, there's this incredible job as the CEO of a global development firm, what, you know, what is your interest? And my first thought, as, as my voice in my head just completely clouded my perspective was, I'm not ready to be a CEO. I haven't been a CEO before, so I have to be a CEO first before I'm ready, or I need to be groomed properly, or I haven't run the P&L from all the way from the revenue down to the EBITDA and net income line. There's too much I don't know about OPEX. And my favorite was, what kind of mother are you? You've got three kids that span from elementary school to going into high school. You can't have a big job and be a CEO. So this inner critic, blah, 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 you're not good enough, you're not worth it, you wouldn't get it anyway, was, was clouding my ability even to put myself in the running. Until two, and they happened to be two fabulous men in my network, and they were peers of mine at our previously publicly traded company. They themselves were looking at private equity-backed CEO jobs. And they sat me down and had a bit of an intervention. And they said, Jennifer, if we think we can be CEOs and we're ready to do that, why don't you think you can do it? If not now, when? 
And that kind of shook me awake a bit to realize that I was putting limitations on myself because the voice in my head was preventing me from taking action. Now, what do you actually do about it? They helped me in this case, but all of us can help each other and certainly help ourselves become more aware of that voice. Once you're aware of it, you can then pause and you can question, you know, is that voice serving me? So become aware of it, pause. The third step is to become a lot more compassionate with yourself. You know, I, I can see what's happening. I'm pausing to look at it and I realize that it may not be serving me. And the last step is to get curious. They helped me get curious by asking me those really pointed questions. You know, if not now, when? And sometimes it takes that, and we can talk also about the role of men and women in being allies for each other, mentors for each other, sponsors for each other. And in this case, my friends, Christopher and Simon, I will always be grateful for, because had I not allowed them to see the voice that was clouding my ability to see myself as a CEO, I may not have ever put myself in the running for the best job that I've ever had. Jen, let's build on that. One of the other hurdles that women and men, but your book is aimed primarily at helping women rise, is this idea you call recognized confidence. Never heard those two words put together before. You term it as a hurdle. Explain to all of us what it means to face and possess recognized confidence. I love this one because this is one that we've shifted our perspective on really in the post-pandemic era. So we call it recognized confidence because we know that confidence is as important as competence. Because if you're not recognized in your competence, it prevents people from seeing your potential. It prevents your light from shining. And the reason it needs to be recognized by others is because women tend to, and this is one of our largest hurdles, it's called proving your value. We tend to, more than men, put our head down and work harder and harder and harder, hoping and believing that somebody will notice and we will be wildly rewarded. And while sometimes that happens, oftentimes it doesn't. And so with recognized confidence, we are saying to women, you have the responsibility to ensure that people see you in your competence. And that means one of two things. One, you need to get comfortable self-promoting. You need to shine a light on yourself. You need to do it appropriately, but you've got to self-promote. And Scott, you're a beautiful example of this and a role model, I think, in making sure people see you and you are recognized in your competence. Women have a harder time with that. So, if they're having a hard time, the second thing we do is, is say, surround yourself with people who will help you do that. If you're not comfortable promoting yourself, ensure that others are shining a light on you. And I tell a story of a, of a recent executive team meeting where the chief knowledge officer of Sherm and I were sharing ideas. And uh, when the meeting was called back to order by our CEO, he blurted out what we had been talking about. And perfectly reasonable. I didn't really think much of it. Our CEO turned to him and said, Alex, that is a brilliant idea. And he did not miss one beat and said, actually, that wasn't my idea. That was Jennifer's idea. And when things like that happen, confidence happens much more naturally, especially for women who tend to shrink. So that's, a, that's an example. What we've stopped talking about altogether, which is why this has changed in the last few years, is to 
help women just get over their confidence problem or get over their imposter syndrome? Because we know that's actually not possible. What we can do something about is ensure that we're shining a light on ourselves appropriately or helping others do the same for us. Jen, since you called me out, let's take that one step deeper. Uh, you said something on the lines, along the lines of maybe I'm actually good at self-promotion. There is a fine line between being viewed as a grandstander, uh, self-aggrandizing, self-promoting at the expense of others, and just doing darn good work and making sure people notice it. Sometimes it's I, sometimes it's we, sometimes it's us, sometimes it's them or her, but sometimes it's you, meaning me. Do you have any advice as a person who's built their career, who is the leader inside of a company, who's coaching and speaking and keynoting around the world now for your new book, what's that, what's that instinctual fine line between crossing the line of seeming so self-absorbed and a megalomaniac and just recognizing that people aren't gonna train their spotlight on you, you might need to sometimes go up there and point it your way. Yeah, I, I don't tend to, with women specifically, I don't tend to worry so much about them taking the, the kind of the egomaniac extreme. More often than not, they are so deferential to, oh, it wasn't me, it was the team or yes. you know, this was a group effort. So they tend to shrink with their role in it. So there's actually a story a, a week or two ago, my chief product officer, uh, Kristen, I know for a fact in our you know, performance and our planning for her development, she has the aspiration to be a keynote speaker. And so we've been finding kind of safe opportunities for her to practice as she hones her skills. And about a week or two ago, she texted me a selfie from the stage and said, I can't tell you how well this went. There were 200 people there. I got one of the top scores of the conference. Thank you for believing in me. And she will find ways to do that um, very appropriately, probably once a week. And what that does is it keeps her top of mind. Now that I know she's crushed the keynote, I'm gonna find a bigger keynote for her to do. And I'm going to help her align uh, along her aspirations. Had she not told me that and had I never known, then, I might not have been seeking out that next keynote. So that's an example. Yes, it has to be appropriate, but women by and large could learn from what I have in my experience seen men do very well, which is make it very well known where they are doing well. And by the way, if we're not doing well, we can also tell a story about how we overcame a challenge and that's another set of skills we can shine a light on. Most women do not talk about themselves nearly enough or self-promote their incredible competence. I want to build on that, and then we'll pivot to some other um, aspects of your career. Your story just reminded me, a couple of years ago, I interviewed a, a very accomplished educator, a, a K-12 educator that had done some transformative things in public education. And I interviewed her because I wanted others to know what had happened and what, was, what good is going on in education. And this person, who I know both personally and professionally, is from the South. So kind of, you know, stereotypical in a positive way, very genteel, great manners, lovely. But the interview was so deferential to everyone on the team. And I kind of wanted to shake her and say, no, I want to know what was going through your mind. What, was, what, what happened when you thought of this idea? It wasn't them. It was you. I know for a fact it was you because I've learned the journey. And this person, I think in an effort to be inclusive, and build a culture and shine the light, it actually was 
not a great interview because I couldn't pull out of her what are the things that you learned and you did. She wasn't taking away from her group, but it ended up, I think, being an underwhelming transfer of knowledge because she was so deferential and so focused on everyone else, not much was shared. This person is a genius. She's accomplished. She's won every award in the book. She's built great teams around her. She has lifted and empowered people. But that would be hard-pressed to find many men who would do that. They could still use inclusive language, but if I asked them what was going through their mind, they wouldn't hesitate to tell me. Yeah, and listen, Scott, this this goes back to generations of, of external bias. And, you know, women have kind of come through the ranks for millennia of, you know, it's better to be seen and not heard and you need to be polite. And, and I think, again, I'm not so worried about women crossing the line of self-promotion because they have a long way to go. Yes, right. And so I really encourage them. It may feel extreme. And so I'll give you a, a personal example. Uh, I am coming into my own as a first-time author. You know, a year ago, as I was writing the book, I was not comfortable claiming that I was an accomplished author. I'd never done it before. But I was comfortable sharing the story of what I was learning and what I aspire to and where I'm going. And so also for women and men, but women especially, it's really important to self-promote in those areas that you want to be known for. This is where branding and presence comes in, another hurdle, and the areas that you're growing into. You don't want to be self-promoting about what a fabulous note taker you are, as an example. So I am very clear you know, with everyone, self-promote, ensure people rec- see you in your competence. That will lead over time to your recognized confidence. And if you're not comfortable yet, phone a friend and make sure that others shine a light on you. Jen, think about your 30 career, year career you've had. Was there a situation when your imposter syndrome or inner critic or lack of confidence, intimidation, whatever it was, took over, and you missed an opportunity to exponentiate your income, your skills, your stature, accelerate towards your goal? And if so, what was it? Uh, Definitely, no, absolutely. And and, I mean, I can go go way back to the Coca-Cola company, and I I remember so clearly, and I, I was always behind the camera in the background. My job was public affairs and communications, and my job was to lift up the other executives. Mm -hmm. And for years, I thought, if I could just get in front of the camera, and if I could just remove the executives and become the spokesperson, become the business leader, I think things would go a lot better. Things would go really well. But I wasn't ready. I wasn't confident. I actually had to leave the Coca-Cola company to then find my own as an entrepreneur and then re-enter the publicly traded world. Sometimes I think about, you know, had I stayed there and had I evolved my role as a business leader at Coca-Cola, you know, could I have ascended as a CEO faster? Not sure, like we'll never know. But fast forward to 30 years later and this entire process of launching a book, I- I'm a business leader, I'm a speaker, but if my speaking had been in the context of driving teams and organizations, so to become a public speaker and an author was a pretty big step for me. And um, you know, I've known you for a long time, Scott. I, I am just now coming into my own in that role. A year and a half ago, I'm not sure I could have seen myself you know, 
emerge as an author. And so what happened? I had to put a team around me. So a fabulous editor, a fabulous publisher, a, fa a fabulous agent, so that they could help me see myself in a way that I couldn't yet see. So whether in your 20s or whether in your 50s, you know, stretching into new experiences is, is tough. And that's why this idea of recognized confidence, this idea of clarity of aspiration and vision becomes so important. Jen, what's your single biggest superpower? Not like, not like, like superhero superpower, but what's one thing you know you do that differentiates your brand that you're proud of, that's a skill that you've developed and curated, you've honed it, you've become careful not to overplay it. What is that one thing? I have the ability to look out. It could be two years, it could be five years, it could be 10 years. I call it a visioning capability. And I can see the end of the story. It may be the business unit, it may be the company, it may be the team, it may be the individual. I can see the potential very quickly and then I could wrap a strategy around how to get there. That has been a strength of mine since I was a child. The, there's always the downside of a superpower, right? And so the downside of my superpower is sometimes I move too quickly and I leave behind the people I need to be part of creating that vision or aspiration, to be part of executing that strategy. That was one of my biggest lessons as the CEO. I had sold the vision and the strategy to the board of directors before I was even hired. And when I got in, I just marched down my superpower and started implementing that and kind of forgot to bring along the executive team with me for a while. You may have just answered this, but I'd like to know a different one. What's your biggest area of growth? What's your blind spot? What's the, the competency, personality trait that you're trying to get on the most because it's like an Achilles heel for you? And I'll put it in the context of Linkage's leadership model, because I think it's a very powerful, simple, and, and elegant model. So when you look at, we call them the five commitments of leadership. Where I really thrive is that inspire commitment. I can paint that picture of a vision. I thrive at innovate, which is creating change to accomplish that. Um, I thrive at achieve, kind of putting structures and processes and resources in place to ensure we're marching toward that goal. Uh, the fourth one is become, that's that self-awareness. It's that commitment and courage to be a better leader every day. I'm actually not bad at that either. I'm pretty self-aware. The one I consistently work on is called engage. And engage is, does every individual, every team feel like they have something to offer and they're in it, they're in it with me. And they're creating that uh, stakeholder fo followership, that you know, that march toward the goal and we're all in it together. Sometimes I get too far ahead, I lead others behind, and sometimes I move too fast. And when I move too fast, I miss some of the details, some of the questions that potentially I should have asked before starting the march. Jen, so many of our listeners and viewers have an idea for a book in their head. They don't know how to start. They either want to codify a learning, they want to leave a legacy, they want to invest in other people. What would you say as we finish our discussion today are some of the key insights you've learned about the process of birthing a book? Your book just released this week, debuted number one in this category on Amazon. It's titled In Her Own Voice, A Woman's Rise to CEO. What have you learned about the book birthing process that you'd say, hey, these three things people underestimate or they, 
they disregard this. Just give us kind of insights, masterclass, two minutes on being an author. Ooh, I know a lot more than I did 18 months ago. And I think I would break it down into three segments and I'll offer one lesson for each segment. So for me, it happened to be six month segments. I was using a traditional publisher and it's a process. So the first, the first lesson is, this is a lot longer of a process than I ever imagined. The writing of the book itself, while challenging, once you figure out your content area, the unique offering that you're bringing to the world, and start the writing process. For me, the six months was broken down into how many words a month, how many words a week. I did it between 5.30 and 8.30 every morning. I'm pretty disciplined. We marched down, uh, and I say we, because I wrote every word and then multiple times um, passed it back and forth with my editor until the book was complete, 64,000 words. So that was hard. The lesson there was ensure that I have the story I wanna tell, the kind of the framework and structure and the discipline to make it happen. The second phase I wasn't actually, um, I wasn't anticipating. And that second phase I call the editing and everything else phase before it goes to print. And so there were words I didn't know of like front matter and back matter. So there's, there's the cover, the flap, the acknowledgements, the endorsements, the references and the editing. So the publisher will send it back again and again and again. And for me, this went on for six months. When it finally went to print in the spring, I sat back and said, well, now I'm done. Now I just wait until the fall when it comes out. And this is probably the biggest lesson. And Scott, this is the one you do better than anyone I know. And this is the launch phase, the promotional phase, the building awareness phase. And this is the phase that requires that recognized confidence that I was talking about. And as a first time author, I had to find that confidence even though I didn't feel it. So it's how are we going to get this book into the world? What is the social media platform? What is the, the launch plan and strategy? Where are we going to invest our time and money? Are we going to have launch parties? So all of these things around creating this awareness of the book in the world is also a massive, massive part of launching a book that I underestimated. I think there's truth in that. I think most authors, like you said, think when they're done, they're done with the book and there is no done. It's, I, I say kind of harshly, launching a book is 90% launching and 10% writing and that seems so absurd until you're actually in the process. Jen, thanks for your, for your transparency there. Send us off. I want you to speak to all the men that are watching fathers, brothers, uncles, leaders, entrepreneurs, founders, mentors, um, sages. Your book is primarily for women, but it's also very much to men. I am married, my wife is a full-time stay-at-home manager of what I call Millerland. We have three sons, but I also have been riveted by your book thinking about leadership principles that are gender agnostic and things that I took away that are hurdles that I faced, some less perhaps than others. What would you like the men that are reading your book that are in a position to be a champion, an ally, a sponsor, an advocate? I was riveted by your, 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 your example earlier when someone in the meeting said, actually, that wasn't my idea, it was her idea. What are some examples of you want, that you want men to do differently as a result of them reading their book, your book, and passing it to everybody on their executive team, regardless of gender. What do you want men to know? Men, if you listen to nothing else in this entire podcast, please hear me now. We 
cannot do this without you. Men still to this day are 70% of the senior leadership roles, 90% of the CEO roles in the Fortune 500. And men play such a critical role in the acceleration of gender equity and leadership. Now, I'll tell, I'll tell you quickly how to do that, but why is it important is that there are more jobs to be filled than we have people to fill them. We know from our data that women make exceptional leaders, so they will drive business outcomes, operational outcomes, engagement outcomes. We need the full diversity in leadership ranks across the organization to drive the business results that we want. But here's how to do that. If men aren't aware of the unique hurdles that women face on their path to leadership and how they're different perhaps than what they faced, they will never be in a true position of ally, coach, mentor, sponsor. And I use all those words really carefully. I'll, I'll, I'll leave you with a story. Um, an ally is someone, like I mentioned, Alex, up here on the executive team, who is my champion. I can be there in person, he can do it behind closed doors, but he's gonna say, you ought to pay attention to Jennifer. She's really good. Let me tell you the superpowers that she has. That's an ally, anybody can be an ally, but we need a lot more male allies because they're in the room in greater force than women. The second is coach or mentor. Uh, I'll use mentor. Mentor is someone who has been there before and can be well positioned to help women and other underrepresented leaders make sure that they don't make the same mistakes that they are well positioned to support. So the, the, uh, the mentor will say, I've done this before. I'm going to walk you to the door that you wanna get into and I'm gonna show you the pitfalls that you're gonna face and how to overcome them. I'm gonna help you get there. A sponsor is someone who will grab you by the hand and open that door and make sure that you get through it. They have the political capital, they have the influence to drive business decision-making. They are in the room when career decisions are made. And we need sponsors, men and women, most of them are men. We need sponsors in our corner. I have had examples of allies, mentors, coaches, sponsors, my entire career. I can tell you, I would never be sitting in this seat without all of them. Jennifer McCollum, CEO of Linkage, a Sherm company, number one new best-selling author of In Her Own Voice, A Woman's Rise to CEO, Overcoming Hurdles to Change the Face of Leadership. Congrats on the success of your book. Congrats on your speaking campaign. Great success to those colleagues at Linkage as well. Part of the Franklin Covey industry where we all complement each other and are all aligned to a similar vision and mission, which is to build better leaders and better engagement. Thanks for your time today. Thank you, Scott. We'll see you back here next week for a new conversation in the C-suite.